Hello and welcome to the Tifo Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I was joined by loads of people. Firstly, I speak to Alex Stewart um, about Delhi Alley, where exactly he uh, fits into the Tottenham team and what's behind his recent resurgence. Giovanni Lo Celso, hugely popular at Spurs. How can Tottenham extract the best out of him? And also defensive problems. I ask Alex, why does this side concede so many goals and why are the individual players so prone to making mistakes? Secondly, I spoke to Jack Pitt-Brook and Charlie Eccleshare to give me an update on the wage deferral negotiations going on at the moment and the suggestion that some of the players already felt undervalued beforehand, which is complicating the post-COVID situation. We also talk about Eric Dyer, who was finally charged on Friday morning for the game against Norwich, where he entered the crowd at the end. We talk about what the likelihood of punishment is here and whether there are any precedents for this happening before. And we talk about Tangi and Dombele. What's the situation between him and Mourinho? And is there a suggestion that he might leave the club? Jack and Charlie don't think so. And finally, I spoke to Seb Stafford-Bloor a little bit about the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust and their role in the reversal of the furloughing decision and also the effects of the last few months on the fan base, not just the furloughing, but the public failures to adhere to social distancing regulations. Aurier and Sissoko are the latest, but Davinson Sanchez and Dombele and Mourinho have all been busted at one point or another. Anyway, that's today's bumper-packed Spurs episode. Hopefully by the end of it, we will have answered what is going on at Tottenham Hotspur. If you would like to answer that question in significantly more detail, you should take us up on our offer of a 90-day free trial to The Athletic, where you can read Jack and Charlie's work, amongst numerous other journalists, sniff around for the latest scoop, and generally read the highest quality football writing on the internet by the greatest ever team of football writers assembled. That's theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO90. That's the numbers 90 for a 90-day free trial. Thanks for downloading today's episode. You can leave us positive feedback in the form of a comment or a rating. Or you can tweet at us your appreciation. I always like it when you do that. Anyway, that's enough from me. And now here's uh, quite a lot of Alex, followed by a fair bit of Jack and Charlie, and then a touch of Seb. Let's talk about Deli Alley first, um, because under Jose Mourinho, Deli Alley has seen a bit of a resurgence. Um, I read recently a piece that, that Tom Worville wrote in The Athletic, Alex, uh, all about where, um, well, it was a co-byline, obviously, but Tom's part was all about where Deli Alley's best position is. We've seen him play in a number of different positions for Spurs under Pochettino and Mourinho, and for the latter part, that is more to do with uh, injuries, we know, than just where Deli Alley performs best. Um, but there are some general concerns around him based on the idea that he was performing much better when he first joined the club. Um, what's the situation there? Why has there been a resurgence now and why was there a drop off in the first place? So the first thing to say is that the drop off is, is quite possibly just because um, he started sort of fantastically well. I mean, he was outperforming his XG and his XA expected goals, expected assists by, by quite a margin in those first two seasons after he joined from Milton Keynes Dons. So it's quite natural that he would, uh, what statisticians say, regress to the mean, i.e., he would start producing expected goals and expected assists at roughly the rate that, that you would expect, or rather his his goals tally would match his XG rather than outperform it significantly. So it's not like 
you know the the drop off has been enormous and he's he's all of a sudden a rubbish player he started on a really hot streak however there is clearly an issue with Deli Ali that he has become one of these players who sort of fits into the system around where other people are you mentioned, for example, the injury issues that Spurs have had this season, and that's seen uh, Deli Ali play as a kind of de facto striker, which is not his best position. It's very clear when the ball is played into him, for example, if he's tightly marked, he'll look for a safe pass backwards because what he wants to do is to find space. That space will allow him either to carry the ball forwards at pace, uh, driving towards defenders, or it will allow him the the opportunity to thread a pass through to somebody else. And his best moments as a centre forward towards the end of this season were when he was able to drop really deep and have runners coming from from deeper positions past him and then he could thread the ball through to them, kind of like a false nine. The issue with, with Dali Ali really is that his... His ability is predicated on how other people play around him and how they create space for him. But because of the issues that Spurs have had with injury and also having lots of attacking players, Deli Ali has kind of been fitted in around them. So the the worst thing for him really, considering what his best position is and how he best operates. And under Mourinho, uh, as you said, we've seen a little bit of a resurgence. What can that be down to? Because also there have been a number of, of injuries which have forced him to play in, in differing positions. Um, you talk about him in, in a script upcoming for a video release on Friday that uh, as best as possible, he shouldn't be used in the, in the number nine position, for example, in place of Kane. No, I think that's true. I, he he is at his best when he's in the centre of the pitch in the 10 position. And there's a very simple reason for this. It's because Deli Ali thrives when he has space. So that can be space to carry the ball into and drive towards opposition players or it's space to find a pass. Now, when you're in the 10 role, acting as a kind of shadow striker or, or a round deuter, which is an expression that we, we use sometimes to do with Thomas Muller, but there are other players that sort of fit into that. When you're central, there are at least three other players around you in a 4-2-3-1 who are making those runs, who are attracting opposition defenders and who are creating space for you. So you've got a striker ahead of you and you've got wide players either side. Now, those wide players will make runs that will attract the fullback and leave space between the fullback and and the centre-back in that channel. That's somewhere that he can attack. Or the striker will be marked and then he can play in the space between the lines. And that basically allows him the opportunity to do what he does best. When he's playing as a striker, he's generally speaking, he's the furthest player forwards unless he drops off for runners in behind. That means it's very easy for him to be marked because you can have a center back picking him up, staying on his shoulder, and that's why you see these kind of simple passes into Deli Ali. He plays the ball backwards. What he's looking to do is then run in behind. But generally speaking, he's not as good on the turn. What, what he wants is to be able to receive the ball with space in front of him. He's much, much more effective when he's, when he's either positioned sort of facing the touchline or facing forwards because then it's quicker for him to turn and start driving towards the opposition. So when you play him as a striker, you negate that ability. 
Okay, um, and can we talk about his ability to game influence as well? This is something that Tom Werfel also brought up in his article, but it's an interesting one. We spoke to Seb about this before we were recording, and Seb noted that actually some of Deli Alley's uh, most impressive moments or some of his finest goals have come in games where he actually hasn't had that much influence beyond the goal. Now, what is his ability to, to influence a game? Because he, one might describe him as a game changer for that reason, not a player who has a consistent influence over the entire of a game, although sometimes that will be the case, but more often than not, a player who might pop up for vital moments uh, despite uh, his broader performance not being um, necessarily viewed as quite as positive. Yeah, so this season he has um, seen a, a, an upsurge in the number of, of chances that he's creating for other players and the XG coming from those chances. So he's, you know, he's not a, a selfish player. He does exist within a system and, and, and work well for others. But I think Seb's point is very valid because... Again, it's about going under the radar. When when Deli Ali is able to sort of drift around the pitch and and find these pockets of space, it's it's largely because the other players are doing the work for him. Um, they're they're attracting the opposition markers. They're making runs. They're working hard. And and Spurs ha- have had consistently good players um, at doing this. You know, Harry Kane will attract markers. Song Hyung Min makes dynamic runs. Lucas Moura, Ella, Eric Lamella, whoever you've got playing in those sorts of positions are going to draw opposition defenders towards them. And what Deli Ali is then able to do is when he has the right moment where he's in space, there's room for him to run, there's room for him to find the pass, he will suddenly produce that one thing that other players who aren't of his quality are unable to do. So so by default almost, he's at his best when no one's paying attention to him. And when, when no one's paying attention to him, it's probably because he's not consistently involved in build-up. Again, this is one of the issues when you play him as a striker. He has to be involved in build-up because he's the furthest player forward. If he has somebody playing ahead of him and he has players either side of him, then he can kind of drift slightly away from that build-up, away from those quick interchanges of passes until he finds the right moment where he's not man-marked, he's not covered, and then he can suddenly do something that frees everybody else up or carry the ball towards the goal and and, and shoot or or pass uh, and, and do something that changes the nature of the game. Do you know, perhaps this is too broad a point to make, but it reminds me a little bit of when Wayne Rooney had to make the transition from being a very young uh, and surprising player to uh, being constantly marked. You know, and that I remember watching United at the time and that taking... I would say a good two to three years for him to fully adjust to being marked all the time as the best player uh, on the team. Um, And I think, you know, he had to adapt his game and he had to find ways where he could work in a smaller space, uh, where he could pass the ball off more quickly. And also having obviously Ronaldo around uh, particularly helped that because he was a big draw too. This this sort of occurred again when when Ronaldo left, I remember. And perhaps one way of explaining the sort of uh, one thing uh, behind the hot streak that that Deli Alli was on when he first joined Spurs is that he came from MK Duns, right? He was young. He, you know, obviously the opposition knew that he was a dangerous player, but Spurs, as you just uh, attest to, is full of incredibly talented attacking players. Deli Ali might not be the first name on the list to mark. So maybe because he was quite so effective, he suddenly attracted more attention. I wonder if there's a difference in the way that opposition teams are marking him. And if he's in a period of transition where he's learning to adapt his style of play to that, where he doesn't always have the space that he would like. 
I think that's certainly part of it. Um, I mean, you know, any player that bursts onto the scene and, and does what he does is going to attract attention. Um, and they have that little golden period, don't they, where they can do pretty yeah. much everything until everyone else adjusts. Well, we've talked about this a lot in terms of other things before on the podcast where, you know, football tactics are essentially, a, a, you know, the, the opportunity that a manager takes to address what the other team is doing and also to, to try and set his team up to, to exploit what the opposition aren't doing and so Deli Ali probably in that first season was was a largely unknown quantity I mean he had been making waves at, um, at MK Dunn certainly but I think the other, one yeah well the other issue is that that positionally he's not he's not incredibly versatile I, I don't want to say that he's anywhere near as good as a, a central midfielder or, or even a defensive midfielder as he is as an attacking one but he has enough to be able to play in those positions and so Pochettino particularly did use him in a variety of different roles um, so you know there, there, are, there are graphics for this in Tom Warville's piece but he, he was a, a, a kind of a left inside forward. He was an attacking 10. He was a central midfielder. He was a defensive midfielder. He's played as a striker under Mourinho for injury reasons. What that means is that each time he moves position, given the kind of player he is, who is so dependent on what everybody else is doing to create the space for him, it makes it much, much harder for him to be able to function as effectively because the team needs to adjust. I don't think it's any great surprise that when he was particularly effective as an inside left was when he was playing with Christian Eriksen in the 10 role. Eriksen was the sort of player who would naturally drop off quite a lot and act as a kind of continuity link kind of 10 with central midfield rather than being one of these very um, progressive attacking 10s who's almost like a shadow striker. That did create space slightly inside in the 10 channel for Deli Ali to then move inside towards. So, you know, Spurs... Spurs have issues with balance, right? um, and we'll we'll come and to to talk about this in a minute with their defensive issues, I'm sure. But trying to get a number of good attacking players into effectively the same area in the pitch when it works well, you know, Spurs play these little interchange passes. Everything's quite clustered towards the middle. It can be very very effective. When that doesn't work, and when there's not the balance in central midfield behind them then it does leave Spurs quite vulnerable and it can leave players like Deli Alli looking fairly peripheral um, because everybody's occupying the same kind of space but there isn't the the quick progression of movement or they're not occupying the same space because they're having to fall back and cover and defend because they don't have the central midfield. With, with Spurs, it's all about balance and they, they haven't really got it at the moment. I'll be curious to see when um, when the front line is back to full fitness, how, how Deli Ali's numbers do. Maybe we can revisit at that time. On the uh, the theme of individual players, can we just take a moment to talk about Giovanni Lo Celso? Um, obviously, he's hugely popular in uh, in amongst the fan base, and I'm just curious to to hear from you um, how to extract the most out of him within this this Spurs team. Where should he be playing, and uh, and how how can the other players support him? 
Well, it's tricky because it's it's not a dissimilar issue to Deli Ali, really. Um, I had a look at some Opta data, uh, and for players who've uh, played over 800 minutes this season, uh, Lo Celso is 31st for chances created per 90, he's 28th for dribbles completed per 90, uh, and he's 16th for successful passes into the final third per 90. So This is just within the Premier League, is this it? Is, this is within the Premier League, yeah. Um, and, and so he's in pretty august company for, for these creative numbers. However, it's not a dissimilar problem to Deli Ali because, you know, Lasalso is really, I think, probably best as a 10. He's best as the sort of the player who is prodding the ball into dangerous areas, who's looking to then move up and support attacks. Um, he's He's got a bit more of a passing range about him, maybe, and a bit more of a, a drive than, than Ali, who is more of a natural second striker who's going to appear in the box and, and score chances for you. But cramming players of that nature in together again is the sort of problem that Spurs have you know when when Song Hyun Min and Harry Kane are both back and fit um it seems very difficult to to see how there would be room for Deli Ali and Lo Celso in the same team, particularly if Lo Celso is being asked to play further back in a double pivot, but not alongside a natural screening midfielder. Um, he seems to be he seems to be a sort of you know we've talked before about like the eight ten hybrid, the sort of Kevin De Bruyne David Silva type of player who is who is not a pure central midfielder and is not a pure attacking midfielder, but sits somewhere in between those two um, without the same level of defensive responsibility that you'd assign an eight, but without playing all the time as far forward as you'd expect to tend to. Um, and he's a really good player. Like he's, he's going to, you know, he's going to be excellent when he arrived from Real Betis. People were very, very excited. But again, how do you, how do you accommodate that within the overall balance of a Spurs team? At the moment, it seems like, you know, perhaps the best way of getting something out of Lo Celso is playing a midfield three, but then it's a lot harder to find room for Deli Alley. Um, if you're playing Deli Alley as a 10, you're going to ask Lo Celso possibly to play as a wide left. I don't think you get the best out of him there. And also or, then that's where Sun plays, right? That's where Sun plays. Um, or, or you play Lo Celso further back, in which case you you know, you know need to adjust the balance. So maybe some sort of a midfield diamond is is the most effective thing. If you have Harry Kane and Sun Kyung Min playing together, but with Sun drifting wide... Deli Ali occupying the 10 space and pushing forwards as an attacker and then Lo Celso on the left-hand side of what's effectively a midfield three. In order to do that, though, you do need to have this kind of screening defensive presence that all of the great Mourinho teams have had. And that is where Spurs, I think, really need to look uh, in the transfer market. Yeah, okay. Well, speaking of defensive problems, um, Spurs have some. It appears that many of their individual players are quite prone to to making mistakes at the moment. Um, What's the reason for that? And uh, what's the remedy, Alex? Well, they are making mistakes. I mean, again, according to Opta, um, for uh, errors leading to goals this season, Spurs are joint third um, with seven. Uh, And for errors leading to shots on goal, they're actually second with 20. Um, Now, some of those errors are, are genuine kind of 
individual clangers like Hugo Lloris dropping the ball over the line when he injured his elbow. But I think, again, what you see is a systematic problem. Um, there, are, there are several things that Spurs are trying to contend with at the moment. Um, one of them is a, a back line that is not quite as physically um, at its peak as it was. Uh, Davison Sanchez is a hell of an athlete, but Aldevira, Vertonghen, they are dropping off slightly. Eric Dyer has never been especially quick. Um, what that means is that that, that back line is, is falling further and further um, closer to its goal. And this is why Spurs have conceded so many shots. They are their fifth in the Premier League for the number of shots conceded. Um, that's because there is a big space in front of the back line because they're dropping deeper and deeper and they don't have this screening covering midfielder. And that means that teams that are particularly quick on the uh, on the break, someone like RB Leipzig, um, as they showed in a recent Champions League game, will be able to find loads and loads and loads of space uh, to run at that back line as they're retreating. If you then throw in a couple of issues like Eric Dyer not being able to find um, especially good distance on his clearances, which led to goals against RB Leipzig and against Burnley recently, Recently, if you look at the fact that the fullbacks are, you know, being encouraged to go forwards to provide width, particularly when Spurs are playing a three at the back formation, but they're not then getting back to cover. Um, this was something that Burnley exploited regularly on Spurs' right hand side with Dwight McNeil um, having a very, very good game being able to get one twos to create overlaps you know there, there are there are systemic issues as much as there are player personnel issues but to me it all again stems from this balance you know Spurs are lacking the sort of defensive midfielder who can cover across who can mop those things up who can allow the back line to play slightly more on the front foot who can cover in behind the fullbacks if the fullbacks get caught out of position and, and Spurs don't have those things and so these individual errors are arising as a result of them having systemic issues rather than just these are overnight bad players. Well, I've given you no forewarning of this, but uh, who would you buy <laughs> to play in that uh, shielding defensive midfield role? Uh, who, or not necessarily who should Spurs buy, but like who's a really good example of a player playing somewhere, whether or not they would fit at Spurs or move to Spurs? Who are we talking about? Um, so we're talking about players like, I mean, I, I would say in the Premier League, one of the really great examples at the moment is Wilfred Ndidi. Um, marvellous Nakamba at Aston Villa, who is playing in a very poor Villa side, um, who are actually uh, first for both errors leading to goals and errors leading to shots on goal. But Nakamba is basically trying to do the defensive work of about three people. Um, we have been looking recently um, at young players for uh, an upcoming video series. Um, Florentino at Benfica would fit that mould. Um, it's, it's the sort of guy who is able to do the dirty work, who will mop up, who is energetic. You don't want somebody who's awful at passing um, because clearly there's a kind of recycling element involved in that. But I mean, players like Conrad Lima uh, at uh, RB Leipzig, who is probably the best pressing midfielder in the world at the moment. Somebody of that nature. The issue that Spurs have is that these sorts of players have increasingly uh, come to realise their value in the market. So, you know, when you had someone like Makaleli, his importance wasn't necessarily recognised. Uh, I think... 
N'Golo Kante's performance for Leicester in their title-winning season was a real step change in how people saw and valued incredibly good defensive midfielders. Um, I mean, maybe Kante is available given the situation at Chelsea. Possibly, although I mean, I think the um, the the issues that Chelsea would have, particularly within their fan base, but also it, it's it's hard to see. It, with Chelsea, because they play Jorginho in in that kind of Pirlo role, the quarterback role, you do need to have those players either side. And I, I think Chelsea's midfield balance with Kovacic as the player who carries the ball, drives forwards, releases passes. You can have Mason Mount doing that as well. You can even have Ross Barkley doing that. And then Jorginho and then Kante on the other side, able to kind of sweep up and do the defensive work and cover as well as get forward. I, I think Chelsea would would be mad to upset that balance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, I don't think Spurs would want to, to well, sorry, Chelsea would want to buy from uh, sell to Spurs. <laughs> you know, so you've got that kind of London thing going on, haven't you? There's the, they'd be more inclined to take a bid from abroad or, or possibly even from another Premier League club. Okay, so uh, Charlie, I wondered if you could give us a bit of an update on the wage deferral negotiations. It's it's um it's very interesting read that, that, that you uh, contributed recently on the Athletics that suggests that some of the players are, are actually a little bit a little bit timid in this area because there's a, a suggestion that they already felt undervalued before this situation. Can you just clarify what that means and and what this means for the for the furloughing situation going forwards? Uh, sorry, the um, deferral of wages going forwards. Yeah, sure. So. There have been tensions going back um, a few years amongst some of the some of the players feeling like they didn't quite get um, maybe the raises or the rewards they were expecting. I think the first time this surface was after the 2016-17 season when Spurs finished second with 86 points and you know, had a pretty amazing season and didn't really then get... Um, you know, much in the way they felt in recognition. Uh, some players as well felt um, similar after the Champions League final last year, although they did get pre-agreed bonuses and I think some some additional uh, things then as well. And so that sense of, well, we've maybe been a bit undervalued in the past and so now you want to do us a favour, kind of now you want us to do a favour kind of thing, um, is a sentiment that I've been told um, some of the players feel. Um, now, obviously, for every club, these negotiations are extremely complex, and that's why very, very few have actually uh, agreed anything concrete. Um, because you are you're trying to make an agreement based on a group of people who who all have extremely different situations. Uh, you know, from a, on a really basic level, you've got a guy like Jafet Tanganga who's in the first team squad playing pretty regularly on around a thousand pounds a week. Then you've got someone like Harry Kane and Tangin Dombele who are on 200,000 pounds a week. So right there, you can see coming up for an agreement that satisfies everyone from top to bottom is difficult. Throw in the fact that, you know, people have different situations with who they have relying on them or whatever. So it's complicated anyway. And that uh, layer of it, that sense of being undervalued uh, is quite an interesting additional layer 
uh, and that's something a bit more specific to Tottenham whereas I think those other things are fairly universal across the board Can I, can I first say uh, you know when we hear numbers like 20% coming out of Arsenal as it relates to wage cuts or, or wage deferrals would that be across the board so if that were to apply to Tottenham hypothetically does that mean Tanganga is taking the same sort of uh, percentage pay cut as Harry Kane would be or is there a situation that could be resolved uh, differently where it was um, personalised to each employee I mean I guess you could do it differently so that different players have different amounts it, it just gets quite messy and quite complicated um and you know that may be the best solution so that you're not um putting people in a position that they don't feel comfortable with um but it, it's just fiendishly difficult finding a way that satisfies everyone um, and also everyone's going to have had different experiences so you know if some players might feel they've been undervalued previously well others aren't necessarily going to feel that way um, you know that's going to be again a very specific thing so I don't know I, I feel like you could um, try and customize it a bit more but in what is already a, a pretty a difficult situation to navigate that adds a layer of complexity that um, some might want to avoid but yeah. I guess everything's on the table at this point so the last time you guys were on we were talking about Spurs uh, as a club uh, and Daniel Levy in particular as a as, a, as an exec that um, approached the finances of, uh, of football in a very sort of strict and sensible way um, and we spoke about a piece that you wrote this was you know uh, maybe back in January, it might even be before Christmas now, about how Spurs have managed to tie uh, their more talented players down to long-term contracts, which just sort of keep renewing uh, every year with slight wage bumps. And they've managed to build this incredible squad um, with comparatively little by way of a, of a wage bill. It felt at the time that that... <laughs> that sort of tactic had started to be noticed and started to be recognised for what it was by the players. And we had situations with Ericsson and Alderweireld, I remember, who suddenly were thinking, actually, I'm not going to re-sign a contract. I can see what's happening here and maybe potentially want to move somewhere else or I'm going to stick around for 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 uh, more money, for example. Do you think this uh, situation with the the botched furloughing job, the current wage deferrals um, and, and uh, what I was just speaking about, does that summarise... Tottenham now as a club that maybe are letting loose a little bit in that regard that maybe we can't describe as the most financially or fiscally sensible club uh, in, in, in the Premier League anymore do you know what I mean? I think what we've seen recently is that Daniel Levy's traditional approach to contracts is falling apart I mean that is that's the only conclusion really to draw from them having to sell Christian Eriksen for about 20 million euros which is far less than what they wanted for him a while before uh, they only did that because he successfully said no to those contract offers uh, for a while and that meant that they had you know they had no option but to sell him to get anything out of him they had to give Toby Alderweireld probably a bigger deal than they would normally give to a player of his age and his position which again shows that they can't really stick to the old principles in the same way and you know we don't know exactly what's going to happen but they're probably going to lose Jan Vertonghen on a free I think that's like the likeliest outcome although they they could I suppose still retain him if he chooses to sign so I think that the old Spurs approach over the course of this season has come under more pressure than it ever has done before and that has made it hard you know it's made, made it harder for Daniel Levy to keep those plates spinning at the same time which is what he did before and now clearly what's happening you know the realities of coronavirus are putting a whole new set of pressures on the financial management of the club which he would 
would never have anticipated. Like nobody would have anticipated that they the new stadium would open and then a year later would get shut and they wouldn't be able to have all these games and lucrative concerts and NFL matches and everything there. So it's been, you know, what was already a delicate balance is now under more pressure than anybody could ever have expected. I suppose, I mean, you touch on the point there. Um, Daniel Levy could never have foreseen these uh, these circumstances. But if we're to look at the way that the Tottenham sort of uh, contracts approach has uh, has worked in the past, would it now, given that it seems to be falling apart, would it, could we now retrospectively categorise it as a bit of a failure? Or would we say that because it worked so well for such a long period of time and enabled Spurs to build the team that it had, finishing second in the league and reaching the Champions League final, it was a success and this is just a natural byproduct of um, uh, of how football clubs are run. We need to move on. I'd say it was definitely a success. You know, they they finished. They you know they should have won the league. Like they finished second. They were the best team in the country, give or take, over a sort of two year time span. And they did that, spending you know as much money on players as Everton do. They did. You know, they they've always had a Europa League wage bill, and they, and despite having a Europa League wage bill, they managed to overachieve. Now, obviously, you know, you can argue that's that is certainly more down to Mauricio Pochettino than Daniel Levy. But Levy was the one who put the the financial plan. To Together. The problem is that that kind of plan was never going to be. I mean, look, we, we've talked about this before, but that kind of plan was never going to work forever because eventually players get older, their priorities change, their mentality changes, they have different expectations, and then you have to change. You know, you can't operate in the same way anymore. But I, cer- I certainly think that that approach was a brilliant approach, which was perfect for the time. You know, the, the, the time it was used in. It was also, I, I mean, I agree. I think it was a, it has to be seen as a success and finish it, you know, getting to the Champions League final whilst at the same time making more in profits than any other Premier League club is extraordinary, really. I mean, they didn't buy a player throughout the season where they then, uh, you know, got to the Champions League final and it's not like they'd spent a fortune before. The, the thing is, you're always, for that to work, you have to get in a manager who's, outstanding and it clicks and they obviously had that in Pochettino but there is a finite period as we saw that nowadays in modern football any manager really can stay at a club and that probably is around what Poch did unless he completely you know revamps the squad and that was financially just out of the question so yeah to a degree you are going to be at the mercy of a, a couple of absolutely outstanding individuals but I think that's that's kind of fair enough there's no other way to do it I mean for them to be competing with Man City and clubs like that is actually pretty amazing when you step back and think about it uh, can I ask you guys about Der- uh, Eric Dyer uh, who as we remember famously climbed into the crowd at the end of the game with Norwich and uh, climbed over uh, what was it 15-20 rows of seats to uh, talk to his brother after the man who was confronting him had uh, f- f- uh, well flown the stadium you could put it um, th- he, he was charged the other day right uh, so what's the situation now? I just want to bring people up to date because I think there was there was some conflicting feelings around that I remember Mourinho at the time saying that he was in support of the player that obviously he'd done something that he shouldn't have but at the same time he's done something that probably everyone in his situation would have done and uh, as a result of the current situation with the pandemic and everything else that's happening with football it's sort of flown under the radar a little bit but can you just up- update us on what's happening with that situation yeah sure so I mean he's been given a misconduct charge and then from there he uh, is able to you know give a response uh, and then uh, the FA will decide on a punishment it, it could be a, a fairly lengthy ban because it is it is quite a serious offense I think it's a really interesting one because at the time I don't think there was a huge amount of condemnation 
for Dyer. I mean, obviously people were saying we can't condone it, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it was quite a human reaction um, to a situation that most people can, to a degree, empathize with. And that's what Mourinho was uh, kind of touching on. I think in the hierarchy of offenses by players, um, it didn't score that highly, partly because for some it, it felt... Uh, commendable is too far but there was a bit of honour and I think it was it was just quite a human reaction it wasn't he did something really stupid he didn't post a video on Snapchat or something like that do you know what I mean so um, I, I think it might be to a degree with a heavy heart is maybe overstating it but he probably will get a you know he'll get a suspension uh, of some sort Um because they can't, they, the FA can't be seen to condone a player storming up seats and confronting someone. Like that is potentially very, very dangerous. I was going to say, is there um, any precedent in this in this case? I mean, Eric Cantona was the one, when we were there. That was the one that came to mind. Obviously, very different, but you know, kung fu kicking a spectator. That was uh, what we started thinking about. But yeah, I mean, it's it's hugely unusual to the point that when we saw it happening, as we, I mean, we. Looked, we kind of heard a kerfuffle from our seats. We could vaguely see it, but I don't think we could really quite believe it or, or make sense of it. It just didn't really seem possible. I, I don't know if that was your memory, Jack. It was weird. I, it was one of those situations where we we didn't know what was happening, and then the first time that we got any sense there was something going on was when you saw hundreds of Spurs fans all with their phones out filming something yeah. now that doesn't really happen normally but then when you saw all these Spurs fans who turned who turned around facing into the crowd with their phones out my immediate reaction was must be a celebrity Spurs fan like Michael McIntyre <laughs> as if like as if the mere presence Zac Efron of Michael, is here <laughs> the mere presence of uh, Michael McIntyre would be enough to get all these Spurs fans to turn around and start taking photos which would be odd given that you know he would have been there for the 120 minutes plus penalty kicks anyway um, but then eventually like you kind of think well it probably is more serious than that and then I think I, had, I think it was I think it was seeing a tweet but that is often how you get clarity on these things even when you're in the stadium you need somebody to tweet about it before you actually realize um, but it was weird it was really weird and also I mean I do remember, like, there was a rumour going around on social media that Dyer was jumping in to defend Jetson Fernandez from racist abuse. Now, that didn't turn out to be the case, but there was, like, an hour or so between the incident and finding out from Spurs officials exactly what had happened that we were thinking, oh, God, how awful there's been, like, another incident of racist abuse, and, we, you know, you would naturally think back to the Antonio Rudiger alleged incident just before Christmas uh, so yeah it was a sort of strange moment to report upon um, and it took us you know it took us a while to piece together precisely what had happened but it was all very odd I mean presumably if there is no real precedent then the FA will have to treat this as the precedent right I mean that what we might be able to infer from the ban that this is a, an attempt to either stop people doing this in the future or at least a point towards when there does have to, there does need to be a further ban in the future you said it might be a lengthy ban Charlie what, what are we talking about lengthy because I know you also mentioned Derek Cantona which was nine months we know it's not going to be that but no. uh, what, what, what does a lengthy ban mean no well also they'd have to do it in game terms rather than months wouldn't they because 
right now, you could uh, yeah, <laughs> could <tackle them laughs> ban, yeah. Yeah, I remember my brother actually in Sunday League got a 12-week ban, but it was over the summer, so it was entirely <laughs> pointless. <laughs> it was also very harsh, but uh, anyway, I'll save that for the Football Clichés podcast. Yeah. Um, I mean, a few games probably. Um, certainly, it'll be interesting to see the, how much uh, of a ban he gets compared with, say, Delhi Ali, who, again, it feels crazy, but Delhi still hasn't... Um, had the verdict delivered on what he's going to get, whether it's a ban or a fine or whatever for the video he posted on Snapchat. And, um, you know, there, there is a feeling that based on precedent there, he'll, he'll probably get a suspension as well. But I don't know. I don't know what people think is worse and how you, um, how you quantify that. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Hey, can we chat about uh, Tangi and Dumbele for a moment? Um, and I would like to start by just asking you guys, what is the situation within Dumbele and Mourinho? I'm sure that, that the Spurs fans listening will be very au fait, but for those of us who are uh, supporters of other clubs or have not paid attention, what's the problem here? Well, they, um, they're kind of, Philosophically uh, polar <laughs> opposites. I mean, they're, they're not a, a natural match. I mean, the idea of Mourinho actively wanting to sign and Dombele uh, is one that's difficult to imagine. So, if you think and uh, is this mercurial, um, quite languid in his approach, but with moments of genius. Those types of players, it's not really what you think about, you know, what Mourinho looks for, certainly in a central midfielder. Um, so th- there have been tensions for a while and, and it's all, yeah, there have been issues where Ndombele felt he wasn't fit to play. Uh, Mourinho talked about this publicly. There was a big kind of ideological split amongst the fan base of people saying, well, Mourinho is absolutely right to do that. And Dombele is, it's not good enough with people, with others saying, you know, give the guy a break. He's, he's injured and um, you shouldn't be throwing him under a bus. Anyway, it kind of rumbled on for a few months. And then at the Burnley game, uh, Mourinho hooked him at half time and came out and just, and just went for him in his post-match press conference. Uh, again, the, it divided the fan base though. I think, more by this point were actually pro Jose, which was interesting because I think there was a sense that uh, Ndombele wasn't working hard enough. Um, Now, what's interesting is that Mourinho uh, doesn't see it or I think the way he would position it is not, it's not an adversarial thing. Like he views it as he wants, he's desperate to get the best out of Ndombele and he sees this as the best way to do it. This is the confrontational leadership that we've spoken about before. Um, but it's, it's just very divisive. And I, I think a lot of people think that this isn't the best way to get, um, yeah. you know, I mean, the best it didn't really work with Luke Shaw, did it? No, I mean, but it, there, yeah, but then there are some players like Joe Cole who it did work well with. He, you know, would take him off at half time, gave him quite a diff- gave him quite a hard time, uh, and then obviously <laughs> the, the plot thickened. In like, I mean, in what would ordinarily be quite comical circumstances, if it weren't for the fact that there's a global pandemic and you know breaking the rules uh, is not a smart thing to do, but him uh, organizing this one-on-one session with Ndombele in the park. 
um, was, I mean, just bizarre. And obviously the context <laughs> of everything that's gone before it. But again, this does tie into the idea that from Mourinho's point of view, he saw that as helping the player out, uh, giving him, you know, one-to-one tuition, as it were. Did he though? And because this is this is Jose Mourinho we're talking about. This is a man who uh, models himself in some ways after Alex Ferguson in that everything that he says to the press is, is it has a subtext and, and theoretically has a meaning, right? I mean, I remember seeing those those pictures of Ndombele and uh, Mourinho in in a public park uh, training and thinking, what 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 is Mourinho getting out of this? He he's a smart man. He knows that people are going to see him. Why does he want the world to see that you know Ndombele needs extra training? Is it could that fit in again to the idea of hooking him at half time, trying to uh, encourage him or trying to get his back up and get him to feel he has a, has, has a point to prove? Yeah, possibly. Or it is just him feeling that showing, you know, showing that he is try- really trying to get the best out of him is is also important. Um, but it, but yeah, I mean, it was it, it was very it was very strange. Um, but I mean, it, it will be very interesting to see where this goes because obviously there's a big. Um, you know, feeling within the club, they really want this transfer to work. He cost a lot of money. That's the thing. Spurs have not gone out and spent loads traditionally. And Don Bele was a big signing. And for a club like Tottenham, who they're not going to outspend their rivals, they need to get signings like this right. And they have done with guys like Le Celso, who's been like exactly the kind of signing they should be making. Steven Bergvine, so far so good. Uh, so they really want to make this work. And Obviously, Mourinho knows if he could make it work, that would reflect very, very well on him. Um, but they, yeah, they're, they're not a natural fit. And I think that's why it's quite a compelling narrative and subplot that's run through the season. I mean, there were reports uh, at the end of last week that um, Barcelona are looking at Ndombele as well. And that perhaps as part of some kind of player swap deal, which we know um, are potentially more likely to happen in, in, in higher numbers um, this summer as a result of the way that the transfer market will be impacted by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, is this likely to happen? Do you think, I mean, I realise that you've just said that uh, Spurs are very, very keen for Ndombele to work out, but if push were to come to shove with, um, you know, if that situation were to, to sort of worsen between Mourinho and Ndombele, who would the club back? And, and, and is it possible at all that he, he could leave? I think Daniel Levy would be really reluctant to let the player go. You know, Daniel Levy, if he, he's, Ndombele's his record signing. Like, he he's never spent as much money on any player before. And I don't think he would be willing to write off any loss on him unless he was very confident he was getting somebody better in return. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether Mourinho could persuade him otherwise because, you know, M- Mourinho is likely uh, to want to want Ndombele out of the door and some players he can rely on. But you can definitely foresee a bit of tension there because it's not like... A, a, Mourinho did, remember, get Abramovich to write off some pretty good players when he back at Chelsea five or six years ago, but I don't think Levy would be quite as persuadable as Abramovich was. Will you tell me about the role of um, the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust and the reversal of the furloughing decision that we've just been discussing? I can indeed, Joe. Uh, So as everyone knows, um, on the 31st of March, the club announced their intention to furlough staff, at which point we had three solid days of um, 
anger. I don't think it's. I don't think that's that's overstating in any way. I think people were very upset. I think they were very disappointed. I think some people were even a little bit ashamed of the way the football club was acting. Um, the supporters trust uh, co-chairs. Um, Martin Cloak and Cat Law issued a statement on the 2nd of April saying that you know, they're aware of the uh, the club's position. They also wanted to, to outline their role as a supporters trust, which is to reflect the beliefs of the fans, not to give unilateral decisions or opinions on you know the, the way the club is behaving. Um, and they urged a rethink, essentially, um, of the club's position. Eight days later, on the 10th of April, by which time, importantly, um, Liverpool had announced that they were going to make the same decision, but then reversed it. Um, again, probably due to a very similar reaction, Liverpool, Liverpool's intangibles are drawn from a very specific set of social values, which uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that the original statement trampled all over um, especially with sort of the the, the acting marketing uh, active marketing slogan of this means more uh, I didn't think it was a particularly good look to to be caught with a hand in the government's pocket but Liverpool listened to the fans they listened to the media's reaction and they reversed their decision Tottenham didn't there was just absolute silence they had in their original statement which importantly was actually released on the same day they uh, they released some uh, very flattering financial results pretty terrible optics all around on that day uh tottenham didn't didn't reverse their decision so on the 10th of april uh the club uh, the the trust issued a clarification in which they said uh in addition to their first statement you know look we're not uh we're not against furloughing per se we're not just issuing a blanket rejection of that because obviously what's important is people's jobs people's livelihoods and their securities what they took issue with was the, was the communication so i think maybe what might work joe is if we um with the description on this pod if we left a little link to that initial statement so people can have some context yeah, sure. that might help yeah. it was very blunt it was very this is what we're going to do deal with it it was very daniel levy essentially uh it spoke about um how ridiculous it was that the people in the world were talking about transfer speculation and potential new additions to the squad it was also uh, Tottenham getting ahead of the curve it was them if they were putting themselves in a position where potentially they could attract the bulk of the eye over it not just from their own fans but the football community at large saying right well, why have you without really clarifying your position or your need to do this are you instinctively uh, furloughing staff and furloughing low-paid staff as well. We're talking about non-playing staff, so of course the lowest-paid members of the uh, of the organisation. So the club said, "Look, we don't um, we don't have a problem with furloughing the, the trust. Sorry, we don't have a problem with with furloughing. What we want is for the club to walk us through why this has happened. It also wants to stress the importance of executives taking the pay cut first. For context, Daniel Levy, Daniel Levy's salary is four million pounds a year. In addition to which, in 2019, he received a three million pound bonus as a result of completing the uh, the new stadium. So, when you are the highest paid chairman in the Premier League, which is saying something given the context of the Premier League, and then you are right at the head of the queue for government money. That is a very, very difficult, um, well, I said, a, a noxious PR problem. And I think the, the, the point the trust wanted to make was that this isn't, whilst in other parts of the world, clubs operate as franchises and they are very much businesses first. I think the point the trust made was that 
clubs in this country were exactly that in the first instance. They were social institutions and therefore the way the club behaves reflects on its fan base. Because it, it, I don't think, Joe, I don't think it's too much of a, stre- a stretch to say that in the future, and this may well prove the case anyway, in the future, had the club not reversed their decision uh, to ensure that everyone receives 100% of their pay and that the only pay cuts are coming from chief, uh, from executives now, then this is the kind of thing that gets sung at fans yeah. at away games. Yeah. No, I think that and, makes and sense. I mean, so, I, I, you're I, on the key point there. And I think I think the key point is, is um, the one that you make on the... On of the trust's behalf, which is that they're not against furloughing in principle. I mean, what I want to do, if you, if you have a moment, is just for us to briefly you know, compare this to the situation at Norwich. Uh, because obviously Norwich, uh, it, there was a silence for a long time. And I think as far as I'm aware, the process of events that occurred there was that the intention to furlough was there with the club pretty early on. Um, it seemed for a while that they had stopped and they were sort of silently observing what was happening with Spurs and with Liverpool. Um However, they have since gone ahead with furloughing um, a number of their non-playing staff. Uh, and Stuart Webber um, spoke to to Michael Bailey and they released this piece in The Athletic uh, just a couple of days ago, actually. Um, ex- sort of explaining why, you know, he describes uh, football clubs as, as dartboards. This is Stuart Webber. And um, he also tries to make the point that they, they, they pay more sort of tax and they'll be benefiting from here across the course of a year. Um, and also that what they don't want to change what they're doing just for the case of public perception. They're making the case that they need to do this. They can't afford not to. Um, and they're attempting to make the financial case as to why that's true. So they're picking up some criticism because they haven't started talking about wage deferrals with their players yet. They haven't asked their players to take pay cuts or, or deferrals or whatever. But their point is that we need to wait to see what the financial damage is going to be. They're expecting anywhere between 25 and 35 million pounds loss here at that point they'll discuss wage deferrals with their players do you think that the case here and you know as as the as the tottenham supporters trust said they're not against furloughing uh, particularly just in certain circumstances do you think there's a difference for uh, norwich a premier league club but one that has 30 million pounds annual revenue versus spurs uh, or you know even manchester united who have uh, 600 million pound annual revenue i'm not sure what spurs is but it'll be significantly higher than norwich is do you think there's a difference there, particularly given the way absolutely. that they're not explaining the reason behind the decision? Yeah, absolutely. I think the only real commonality is this this aversion a lot of football clubs share with actually walking people through their their, their processes. That's the issue. It is a, I'm, I'm going to quote the trust again, the, the, the trust, the Tottenham supporters trust were not against furloughing. They were against redundancies and loss of revenue. That is the key issue here. Now, how football clubs work their way around it is um, immaterial if they don't communicate that properly. Uh, without question, look, let, let's also add a further layer of context, Joe, because uh, Tottenham, when Tottenham released their financial results, people saw, I think it was a £96 million profit, which is actually, I think, a, a world record in football. And that's very, very difficult to to, to tally with the approach that they, re- they, they announced a couple of hours later. Having said that, Let's remember also that let's let's think of some of the other firms to to utilize the the the, the furloughing scheme. So Tesla, for instance. Now Tesla obviously are associated with Elon Musk, whose wealth I think is somewhere in the region of twenty billion dollars. I think that's accurate as of twenty nineteen. Joe Lewis, uh, Tottenham's principal owner, 
is worth five billion dollars so he's kind of a market trader in relation to someone like elon musk and yet there isn't half the outrage so that the the, the key is not public relations but allowing people to understand because rightly or wrongly because of the way footballers behaved over the last few generations the public are absolutely entitled to think the worst or to assume the worst in every situation so diffusing these issues is the first step for anyone whether you're tottenham whether you're manchester United, or whether you're norwich yeah, and they haven't done that. And you know, I listened to Rafa Honigstein, who's going to be on um, our second podcast this week. Actually, he was on the the, the Stylecast, the, the Athletics Bundesliga podcast, talking to Meza Erzul's agent um, about some of these issues. And what I found very interesting, and obviously we should caveat this with the with saying that this is from the agent's perspective. So obviously his intention is to look out for the welfare and the best possible outcome for for his players, right? But he was drawing. I mean, I think he was uh, alluding to Arsenal. Let's say. Um, around the, the wage deferrals and the, and the wage cuts situation with players at football clubs. He was, and the, the picture he painted was that if football clubs are going to their players to ask them to take wage deferrals or wage cuts, they should be explaining why and giving some insight as to why that is necessary. Now, that is not to say that the players don't want to do that, don't want to do everything they can to help the other, other staff, aren't in, incredibly wealthy, uh, and certainly in the, in the case of Premier League players. And obviously, for the most part, want to do what they can um, they will be hugely criticised if they show any sort of opposition to this as well. So there's an element of pressure involved in these uh, situations and the negotiations. And also there's reports of clubs using uh, the head coach or using start, like uh, coaching staff to try and um, negotiate with the players, which also might add an element of pressure as well. As uh, Meza Ozil's agent says, if you're a young player, for example, and you might see this connected to your future at the club. But the, the basic uh, requirement in this case would be to explain why it's necessary. And when you hear about a club like Norwich who are going ahead with furloughing but haven't even had the conversation with their players yet because they admittedly don't know what the outcome is going to be. They don't know how much money they're going to lose because nobody does. How can you then sort of rectify that with what a club like Arsenal does, uh, asking players to take uh, pay cuts? How do they come up with those figures? Under what circumstances do they do they know that they need that much money, etc.? It all becomes quite muddied, doesn't it? And it, say, it runs into the same sort of theme of clubs um, you know, the, I suppose that the total accusation that um, that or, or, or alleged accusation that Mesut Ozil's uh, agent or any agent might make is that this opportunity is difficult for clubs, as it is difficult for everyone. But it does also present opportunities for clubs to potentially take advantage if they aren't being watched. Absolutely, Joe. I, I think one of the key points there is that, firstly, this is an unprecedented situation. And secondly, even at the best of times, which these most certainly aren't, football clubs are very opaque. The public are not privy to the decision-making processes. They also don't necessarily understand the dynamic by which, for instance, player, or wage deferrals for players would be agreed. It's not like an ordinary organisation. You cannot make that decision unilaterally. It cannot just be a decree from on high that you are going to take 30% out of someone's wages because... Uh, it is in a negotiation. I think a really good example to look to, and as a Tottenham fan, it, it really does pay me to say this, but Chelsea have handled this extremely well. If you look at the way they have communicated, not just with their fan base, but with the public at large and society around them, then that is that has been exemplary. I also think one of the other things that you have to factor in is that for, for people who, who are not in the UK, uh, Matt Hancock is a, uh, is a government minister, and he's been very vocal not correctly so about trying to shift the burden of responsibility onto the shoulders of Premier League footballers which 
given the issues in this country with taxation and and the percentage of the super wealthy that Premier League footballers make up, which is negligible at best, you are adding a further complication, a further pressure into a situation which already lacked definition, Joe. Uh, and so the best way forward for every club was just to be just to be transparent. I think just bring it right back around to Tottenham. I think one of the shames of this is is that the furloughing issue and the what ultimately has to be described as a flip flop disguises some of the good the club have done. So I've got a little list in front of me which I picked out of the of the of the uh, the way that the the stadium is being repurposed. So at the moment, um, the media entrance and the cafe um, are, has, has been sort of uh, turned over as a a welfare area for visitors and NHS staff they're treating people in the stadium itself um, the the NFL away changing rooms are going to be used as a maternal day unit not quite sure what that means but it sounds helpful um, the interview rooms and the players tunnels um, are going to be used as consultation and scanning rooms um, and the away dressing room the football away dressing room will be a, a midwives clinical room this is all good stuff this is all good social responsibility and yet the lesson is because you couldn't communicate because you as football so often does because firstly it thought it knew best and secondly it didn't think it needed to explain itself no one's really interested in any of that yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Um, just quickly, can you can you sort of talk about the the wider effect on on the fan base here, and not not just as it relates to furloughing, but but also other recent issues, Moria um, and Sissoko, Davinson Sanchez and Dembele, Mourinho, you know, all busted at one point or another. Yeah, mindlessness. Uh, I would draw a line between the kind of issues we've described in the last ten minutes and these ones because the way the club behaves culturally reflects on the fans the way players behave is regrettable and indefensible, but ultimately something we all just, you know, we can condemn without feeling any personal responsibility for it. I can't offer any explanation for why these things have happened. This is social distancing, uh, incidentally, the names that we yeah. just mentioned. These are players who, who, who fail to adhere to, to public social distancing regulations. Yeah, so the first instance was uh, Jose Mourinho uh, organised an ad hoc training session with uh, Tangi and Dembele and they went out running and this is where it gets a little bit, bit vague at some point they encountered Davidson Sanchez who was out on his own little run <laughs> and he joined in the, in the in the training session and obviously there are some fairly damning and vivid pictures which show that they are not respecting no. social distancing policy. I don't policy. know if you've seen this outside Seb but sometimes when I go outside for, for my daily exercise which is a very Your slow walk by the way exercise. my government sanctioned yeah. incredibly slow <laughs> walk mine too. Um, <laughs> I occasionally walk past people who go oh hi fancy seeing you here you know as if you haven't set up to meet and make it look like an accident that's happening all over Crouch End and I don't mind telling Except in Tottenham or areas near Tottenham where even after that first controversy, somehow Serge Aurier and Musa Sissoko managed to uh, commit the same offence a second time uh, a couple of days ago. Let's put this into context because there are worse things going on. By all accounts, Moyes Keane organised a house party over the weekend, which I don't even know where to begin with that. Jack Grealish has broken... um, I think he, he attended a party a couple of weeks ago. So it's happening and people are making mistakes. What about Kyle Walker? That's my favourite one. Yeah, well, he's not our problem anymore uh, as, as a Tottenham fan base. Was that, was that yes, story he, true, though? I 
don't know so i'm i'm hesitating yeah, i agree with, let's hesitate but um perhaps let's it's not true yeah, i mean there was some sort of alleged thing i don't know let's, if that's the let's, case let's, let's just step yeah, step back from step that ledge. away yeah move away from the Carl yeah, walker yeah, ledge yeah yeah i think you know you know joe to be circumspect about this i think what this has, has shown is the effect fans can still have on their clubs because the supporters trust have done a, a wonderful job um, I like to say that I know Martin and Kat personally so and I like them so I'm a little bit biased however the fan base as a whole has really stepped up a lot of people have understood that unlike a lot of times in football where tribalism kicks in and people will defend their, their club to the death irrespective of what they do there was very little hesitation in the majority saying this is outrageous fix this we will not support we will not tow this line and actually, maybe it's just because the world's a bit of a desperate place at the moment. That's been very heartening. That's been very encouraging to see. Well, I just want to say that I'm looking at The Guardian right now, and The Guardian have a story that reads, Manchester City are to investigate Carl Walker over sex party during lockdown. Walker apologises for inviting sex workers to his home. City disappointed and will conduct internal disciplinary. They're disappointed. Uh, so The Guardian are saying that I think it's okay for us to say sex party. Well, we uh, talking on behalf of the Tottenham fan base. I'll say to Manchester City, it's not like you weren't warned about about Carl Walker. So. Okay, right. Well, listen, um, that's all fantastic. <laughs> Thanks very much, Seb. And uh, we will uh, be back later in this week. I'm going to speak to uh, to Rafa Honigstein about just how the Bundesliga plan to start playing football again, it, which is fascinating, incidentally. Um, and we'll be back next week with another What's Going On At episode, but about a different club. In fact, I might do um, uh, another Newcastle episode um, more about the new prospective owners with James Montague I think that's a good idea that would be great look forward to that cool okay uh, thanks very much for listening everyone and um, we'll hope to hope to see you back here soon au revoir au revoir